Welcome to Who is Jesus, a limited edition podcast by Central Western Church in St. Louis. Each week, we explore a different aspect of Jesus' life, identity, self-understanding, and purpose in the world. Our goal is to look beyond the hot takes to the historical sources themselves in order to see more clearly who Jesus is and why it matters for us. For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com. And now, please enjoy this week's episode of Who is Jesus? Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, through chapter 10, verse 7. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Now, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. We are in a series in which we are exploring the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Some weeks that means looking more carefully at images of Jesus in our culture that are really, really popular like Jesus the teacher, or Jesus the revolutionary, or Jesus the spiritual guru. We've looked at some of those already. But then some weeks it means looking at um, aspects of Jesus that are equally well-known but rejected, often because they're seen as outdated religious myths, like Jesus the judge, or Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for sin. We're going to look at those in the weeks to come. But then there are other aspects of Jesus that are virtually unknown in our culture. For instance, in week two, we looked at this idea of Jesus as the true Israel. That is not an answer that's going to pop up on many who is Jesus surveys. And yet it's these unknown aspects of Jesus that are the most important for understanding who he really is because they're not really unknown. They're simply forgotten. But over the last several decades, many historians have been paying more and more attention to these forgotten aspects of Jesus. And especially, historians pay attention to the fact that Jesus is, newsflash, Jewish. And if we don't understand Jesus in his first century Jewish context, then we are not going to understand him at all. 
We'll simply end up importing our own categories onto Jesus. So understanding him in his context is crucially important. And especially for understanding him um, in these unknown aspects of who he really is. Um, so this morning, and here's the really the amazing thing, at all, uh, most amazing thing of all, is that the more we understand Jesus in his first century Jewish context, far from making Jesus less relevant for our modern world and for the rest of history, it makes Jesus exponentially more relevant for the rest of history in our world. Why? This morning, we're looking at one of those forgotten aspects of Jesus. We've um, touched on it over the past few weeks, but this morning, we need to go deep. It's about this experience of homesickness that we all have. Sometimes it's called alienation or nostalgia, but it's this, this experience we all have of feeling like we're cut off or exiled from our true home. We all feel like there's some place, some home we were created for. We've never seen it. We've never experienced it. We have no rational scientific reason for believing it even exists. And yet, we can't shake our longing for it. So whether you're religious or spiritual but not religious or deconstructing or even if you're deeply secular, the question is not whether you experience this. The only question is, what do you do with this experience? This, this morning, we're exploring that topic. And the passage, um, there are dozens of passages we actually could have looked at to explore this. But the passage I chose this morning, Jesus um, calling his 12 apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God. I chose it because virtually every historian acknowledges that, that uh, these two things about Jesus are virtually certain. Number one, Jesus was constantly proclaiming the kingdom of God. And number two... He called 12 apostles to proclaim that kingdom as well. What does the kingdom of God have to do with our experience of homesickness? Let's find out by looking at this passage. We see Jesus doing three things here with the kingdom. Uh, number one, he's reviving our longings. Secondly, he's retrieving the story. And lastly, he's recentering the kingdom. Jesus is reviving our longing, retrieving the story, and recentering the kingdom. Okay? So, first, Jesus is reviving our longing. Um, the kingdom of God comes up twice in this passage. Right at the beginning, it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then at the end, Jesus calls 12 apostles, and it says that he sent them out saying, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's ask the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? And by the way, in the gospel of Matthew, um, it talks about the kingdom of heaven. In the other gospels, it talks about the kingdom of God, but it's the same thing. Um, Matthew uses heaven because ancient Jewish people wouldn't say the name of God, but heaven is just a substitute word for God here, okay? So what is the kingdom of God? Any first century person, uh, Jewish person, when they heard this phrase, they would have known what this means. When we hear the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it's easy for us to think maybe that means like some destination, that we go after we die. Or maybe we think that it means some kind of inward, deeper spiritual experience, the kingdom of God. But when a first century Jewish person heard this phrase, none of those things would have been on their mind. The, the heaven, I mean the kingdom, uh, basically means the reign or rule of God. It's kind of like that old Burger King commercial, have it your way. The kingdom of God is anywhere the love, justice, peace, power, and um, will of God are having its way. 
And especially for any first century Jewish person, when they heard this phrase, it would have immediately conjured a whole storyline. It's kind of like if you hear the phrase Star Wars or Harry Potter. It immediately conjures a storyline. It's impossible not for you to be thinking about the storyline whenever you hear that. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's talking about the whole storyline of the Bible. Now, we talk about this all the time here, but um, this morning I want to focus on one particular theme in the story. It might just be the main theme of the whole Bible. It's this theme of exile and homecoming. The story goes like this. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world and he puts the first humans in the Garden of Eden. We saw last week that the garden is the, um, it's the original holy of holies in the temple. The garden is the original place of God's presence. It's the true home that we were created for. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then in Genesis 3, uh, the first humans rebel against God. And what happens? Exile. They're cast out from the presence of God. And ever since then, we've been trying to find our way home. That is the main storyline, the main theme throughout the whole Bible. And of course, the big exile in the Bible is for the nation of Israel, because after centuries of rebellion, God sends them away into exile, into the nation of Babylon. And eventually, God brings some of them back to Israel, but many more are scattered throughout all the nations of the world. But wherever they are from that day on, they're constantly oppressed and subjugated. So throughout the Bible, there's this promise, one day, someday, our God is going to come and, and set up his reign on earth. He will regather his people, we will return from exile, and we'll all finally be home. That promise was throughout the story of Israel. So by the time Jesus showed up for hundreds of years, Israel had been waiting and hoping and longing and groaning one day, someday. Oh, when will that day come? Will that day ever come? Have you ever experienced that feeling of one day, someday? That feeling that, you know, we're living in this world, but we don't really feel at home in this world? I still think that nobody described this better than C.S. Lewis. My favorite essay of his is called The Weight of Glory. And in that essay, he talks about our own desire for what he calls our far-off country. It's this experience that, that we have. But he says we've never really experienced the thing itself. All we ever experience is hints or glimpses or reminders. They might come to us through music or experiences of beauty or memories of the past. But he says that these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself... They turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Have you ever experienced anything like this? We have this longing, and yet it feels so far away. So what do we do about that? We have different ways of, of coping with this one way is we might manage it, that's chasing accomplishments or achievements. Another way is maybe we medicate it through alcohol, drugs, Netflix, porn, video games, social media, whatever. Um, an especially modern way of dealing with the, this sense of exile is we mock it. 
Because in our modern world, belief in God is oftentimes seen as a childish failure to face reality. And yet those longings never really go away. So for instance, in the TV show Seinfeld, there's one episode where Kramer's talking to George at the diner and he's talking about how, uh, how much dissatisfaction he feels in life. And at one point, um, Kramer, he goes around the table, he gets right up next to George, looks in his eyes and he says, do you ever yearn? And George is like, yearn? What, what do you mean yearn? And Kramer's like, oh, I yearn. Don't you ever yearn? And he says, you yearn? And Kramer's like, oh, yes, sometimes, oftentimes, I sit and I yearn. Haven't you yearned? And George is like, well, sometimes I crave. <laughs> it's an incredibly funny scene. But friends, that's the point. The whole question itself is played for laughs. Because Seinfeld, as you know, is, I mean, a deeply ironic and cynical show. You remember what it's about? It's a show about nothing. <laughs> because ultimately, life is about nothing. In our modern world, there is no God. There's no deeper meaning and purpose. There is no true home. True home doesn't exist. So just enjoy yourself now because that's all we have. Make jokes. Eat pizza. Have sex. Go to the movies. Laugh at people. None of it matters. None of it matters. Yes, I yearn, but if I can laugh at that, then I can dismiss it, and then maybe I won't hurt so bad. Friends, when Jesus steps into the, the middle of Israel's story. He's stepping right into the middle of them, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus is doing that, he's stepping right into the middle of Israel's most heartbreaking longing and ours, and he's reviving it. He's saying the time has finally come. It's right at your doorstep. The return from exile is here. It's time to come home. You know, it's really hard really hard to allow ourselves to keep longing for all those things we long for so deeply, to keep longing for home in the midst of our sense of exile. In, in fact, oftentimes it's way easier for us to just find shortcuts, ways of medicating or managing or mocking our sense of exile. But Jesus is calling us home. He's saying the return from exile is here. It's arrived. But the way he calls us home isn't what we would normally think. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen that Jesus is reviving our longing. But secondly, he's retrieving the story. Here's what this means. If you've been with us throughout this series, um, we talk a lot about the story of Israel. And I hope by now you're starting to see just how crucial understanding the story of Israel is for understanding who Jesus is. Because that story is at the heart of everything Jesus is doing. So as we saw in week two and again last week, the story of Israel is the story of God's multi-ethnic, multicultural mission to bring rescue and renewal to the whole world. And if you want a review on this, go back and listen to week two. But here's the thing I want to remind us of this morning. And by the way, if all of this is feeling a little repetitive to you, rejoice. Because that means you're remembering it. And one of my deepest hopes for you is that you would be able to talk about this stuff intelligently and articulately with other people. But here's the big problem. Um, God's universal mission for the whole world, by the time Jesus showed up, this universal mission for the whole world had gotten shrunk down to a very narrow, political, nationalist vision for Israel only. So what does Jesus do about that? Because those things are a problem. We see that in our own world the dangers of nationalism, the dangers of racism, political tribalism, hatred, 
polemics, division, exclusion. We see those things in the church. In fact, it's one of the big reasons that so many people want nothing to do with Christianity. So what does Jesus do about that? Israel has their story, but they've distorted the story. Does Jesus reject that story and substitute a new one? Not at all. Jesus retrieves the original story and calls his people back to it. So for instance, in our passage, notice it says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus was known, he was renowned as a great healer. In fact, um, one of the big things that a lot of historians agree on is that probably the main reason that Jesus basically went viral in the um, Judean countryside is because he was healing people. Jesus was renowned as a healer, and not just healing Jews, he was healing Gentiles. That means he's not just healing his own people, he's healing their enemies. That confused a lot of people, even John the Baptist, who was Jesus' forerunner. I mean, they all thought, wait a minute, isn't Jesus supposed to be putting swords in our hands and leading us into battle? And Jesus is saying, no, that's a distortion of the story. Let me retrieve the original story for you. So, for instance, in Matthew 11, Jesus, I mean, he basically says to John the Baptist, bro, don't you remember our story? Don't you remember what the prophet Isaiah said would be the big sign that the return from exile was here? He, and then he quotes Isaiah 35, which is all about return from exile. It says, here's the big sign of the return from exile. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The sign of return from exile is not hatred, it's healing. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not rejecting their story and substituting a new one. He's retrieving the original story. He's rejecting the distortions of that story, retrieving the original one, and calling them back to that original story. Here's what this means for us. Think about the story that shapes our modern Western world, and increasingly our global world. One of the biggest ideals in our world is the ideal of progress. It's this idea that humanity is getting better. And we can make the world a better place through things like science, technology, politics, diversity, equity, inclusion, freedom, tolerance, justice, human rights, individual dignity, and of course, love. Where does that story come from? Because it didn't exist in the ancient world. Thomas Cahill is a famous historian. Um, his, one of his most famous books is called The Gifts of the Jews. In that book, he points out that um, ancient people saw the world as a, uh, basically a never-ending hamster wheel of birth and suffering and death. Uh, Eastern traditions call that the karmic cycle, but that view was throughout the ancient world. History is a wheel that's going around and around and around. Birth, suffering, death, wash, rinse, repeat. In the ancient world, there was no making the world a better place. There was no being on the right side of history because there is no changing the wheel. The best we can hope for is to escape the wheel. But along comes the Bible with this radically different story that says, no, 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 history is not a wheel going around and around. It's a story of rescue and renewal. It's a story about change and progress and healing and redemption of making the world the place it ought to be. That is a radically different story 
than the, the story in the ancient world. Friends, the reason we have um, this idea of progress is because it comes to us from the Bible. It didn't exist in the ancient world. And so um, all the ways that we uh, look at the world and when we critique it, the, the Bible is telling us those things can be changed because this idea of progress comes to us from the world. I mean, from the story of the Bible. It's the story of the kingdom. That's the reason it's in our culture, which is a very, you know, in our culture, that's like borderline blasphemous to say something like this because we think, no, 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 the story of progress, that comes from the Enlightenment. That's when we discovered science and reason and we rejected religious superstition. It's a very popular story, but it's a myth. And Thomas Cahill is just one of dozens of historians and philosophers who are constantly pointing this out, going back at least as far as Friedrich Nietzsche. Friends, here's the point. Here's what all of this means for us. Listen, we should critique Christianity. But what are the categories we use to do it? When we say, well, the church is violating things like individual dignity and human rights and diversity and inclusion, but those are Christian categories they didn't exist in the ancient world. The reason we value these things so much is because they come to us from the Bible. That means if we reject Christianity, we're rejecting the source of the categories we use to reject it. It's like cutting off the branch we're sitting on. Friends, listen, Jesus, what is he doing here? He's critiquing his people. But, but what he's doing is he's not rejecting their story and substituting a new one. He's retrieving the original story and calling them back to it, which means that because the story of Israel is the story of the whole world, including you and me, Jesus is calling all of us back to this story. But there's one more part of this story, and it's the most important part, and that leads to our last point. Jesus is reviving our longing. Secondly, he's retrieving the story. But last, Jesus is recentering the kingdom. Because think about what we've seen so far. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. He's reviving our longing, our deepest hopes for true home. But then Jesus is confusing everybody back then because um, instead of leading them into battle, he's healing people, even Gentiles, healing their enemies. And people are thinking, wait a minute, maybe Jesus isn't the guy we thought he was. But then Jesus does something unmistakable. Remember, the exile of Israel was when all of Israel was scattered throughout all the nations of the world. But then Jesus, it says in our passage that he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus calls 12 disciples. That is not a random number. It's full of significance because the nation of Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes had been scattered throughout all of the ancient world. When Jesus calls 12 disciples, he is sending an unmistakable signal to everybody that the time has come to gather the nation of Israel back home, to call them home. He's, he's sending an unmistakable signal that the time has come to regather and renew the people of Israel. And we see that especially in his instructions to the disciples. He tells them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans who were other enemies of the Jews, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, at first glance, this might sound confusing to us because we've been making a really big deal about how God's mission is a multi-ethnic, multicultural mission. And here it sounds like Jesus is saying, forget about the Gentiles. Forget about the mission. What's going on? 
Well, here's what's going on. It's kind of like, you know, movies like Ocean's 13 or the Mission Impossible movies. You know how in those movies there's always like a mission or a heist that the team has to accomplish? But in order to accomplish the mission, what has to happen first? They have to regather the team. And that's hard because they're scattered all over the place. Somebody has to go and and seek them out, regather the team. In order for the mission to be accomplished, they have to regather the team. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is not saying forget about the mission. Jesus is regathering the team for the mission. But here's the most amazing thing of all. Not only is Jesus regathering the team, Jesus is recentering the kingdom on himself. Because think about this with me. Jesus calls 12 disciples. The 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But who does that make Jesus? Because Jesus is not one of the 12 himself. He's the one who calls the 12. And in the Bible, God is the one who calls the 12 tribes. In the Bible, God is the one who regathers the 12 tribes. What is that saying about Jesus? I mean, who does this guy think he is? If you look at verse 36 in our passage, notice it says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is saying that Jesus is a shepherd. In fact, in other places, Jesus calls himself a shepherd. And in the Bible, shepherd, that's language for a king or a leader. But in the Bible and in our world, every earthly shepherd ultimately fails. And in the Bible and in our world, every human effort to find our way home ultimately fails. Israel needed a true shepherd to rescue them and bring them home. We also need a true shepherd to rescue us and bring us home. Friends, that's exactly who Jesus is because that's who God is. In Ezekiel 34, a very famous chapter, it's amazing, you should read the whole thing. I wish I had time to read the whole thing for you. But in Ezekiel 34, God himself is talking about how every earthly shepherd ultimately fails. But then God calls himself the true shepherd, and he says this, My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, he's talking about the exile, with none to search or seek for them. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And I will rescue them from, a, from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. When Jesus calls himself the shepherd, are you starting to see? Who is Jesus? He's not just announcing return from exile. Jesus is the return from exile because Jesus is the true shepherd who rescues us and brings us home. How? Ezekiel says it's on a day of clouds and thick darkness, which sounds like kind of obscure language to us until we realize that the day Jesus was crucified was a day of clouds and thick darkness. On the day Jesus was crucified, both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us that darkness was over all the face of the earth. On a day of clouds and thick darkness, Jesus was searching for you on the cross. He was seeking you out like the true shepherd. On a day of clouds and thick darkness, Jesus was lost. Jesus was scattered. Jesus was sent into exile, away from the presence of God, so that he could seek you out, rescue you, and bring you home. The cross was the ultimate exile for Jesus, so that it could be the ultimate return from exile for us. Dear ones, 
here's what all of this means for us. Our longings exist because true home exists. We were created for it. But one of our big problems is that we've forgotten the God at the heart of that story, the God at the heart of our longings. We keep substituting all these alternative kingdom stories like progress or nationalism. We keep substituting these stories because we're trying to find the kingdom, the home at the heart of our longings, but we don't want the God at the heart of the story. But here's what this means. The ultimate home that we all uh, long for is not a place or a destination, ultimately, even though God promises a new heavens and a new earth. And the ultimate home that we long for is not an inward spiritual experience, no matter how spiritual and wonderful it might feel. The true home at the heart of our longings is not just a place, it's not just a destination, it's a person. Or we could say it like this, the home at the heart of our longing is the God at the heart of the story. It's, it's not just a place or a destination. It's a person. It's God. It's Jesus. Jesus is the home at the heart of our longing because Jesus is the, uh, the God at the heart of our story. So listen, if you're um, spiritually curious or spiritually skeptical, wherever you might be, uh, I want to encourage you to consider that all the things you long for most deeply come from this story, the story of the kingdom, that your longings for love and home and justice, and renewal. Those things come from the story of the kingdom. That means that all the things that put you off about Christianity are distortions of the story. Jesus is not inviting you to reject the story. He's inviting you to retrieve the story and recenter your life around him. And if you are a Christian, but really this is for all of us, listen. Uh, In our world, man, we are living in a really hard world. We have longings for all kinds of things, but all of our greatest miseries come from the fact that we are constantly seeking alternative kingdom stories and and forgetting the God at the heart of the story. We want the kingdom, we want the home at the heart of the story, but not the God who tells the story. And yet all of our greatest miseries come from this. But but here's the thing. God is not calling us to... um, to pursue those stories without him. He's calling us to pursue those stories through him and by him and after him and following him. I mean, think about the world we live in. Our world is moving so fast. We are um, driven by a pressure to perform. We are um, filled with anxiety and fear. We're drowning in addictions and loneliness. We're divided by hatred and ideological fundamentalism, both on the right and on the left. But Jesus is inviting us to recenter our lives on the home at the heart of our longings by recentering our lives on the God at the heart of the story. The more we recenter our lives on Jesus, the less anxious and fearful we will be, and the more nourished and equipped we will be to pursue Jesus in his mission of love, justice, peace, healing, and renewal. Following Jesus does not mean abandoning our pursuit of those things. It means pursuing them all the more um, because even though we can't fulfill them or accomplish them in our own power, it means following Jesus, pursuing those things all the more because we're following the God at the heart of the story who's leading us home. Are you following this God? Have you recentered your life around him? Would you consider doing so? If you're willing, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you created this world and that you created it to be a place where you would dwell with us and where you would be our home because, Father, our true home is in you. You are 
the home at the heart of our longings because you are the God at the heart of the story. And we pray this morning that you would help us to rediscover the home at the heart of our longings by recentering our lives around Jesus, the God at the heart of the story. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to follow you in that story, that just as you called your original followers to go out and do the things you did and proclaim the gospel you proclaimed, that you would help us to do the same thing because, Lord, you, there are so many others that are scattered and lost, harassed and helpless. And we need, just like them, to be following you. They need to know you and love you and follow you. So we pray that you would um, help us to go out as, um, as your sheep following the great shepherd and that you would help us to be your people in this world, calling all to the home at the heart of their longings, which is found in the God at the heart of the story. Where We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Who is Jesus? For more information about Jesus or about Central West End Church, please visit www.centralwestendchurch.com.